0: You are listening to Misty Radio on WMBR Cambridge 88.1 FM, a show that connects MIT to the world. I'm your host, Sonia Sampson-Hill. Ari recently had the chance to catch up with Kathleen Schwind, a 2019 MIT graduate from the Urban Studies and Planning program. Kathleen traveled extensively through Misty while she was a student at MIT, making it to 22 countries by the age of 22. They caught up about her attraction to the world's most intractable problems and the role of water in Middle East peace building. After, we wanted to feature a country we haven't before on the show, and that is Mexico. We had an interview with Griseldo Gomez, the managing director of the MIT Mexico program, and Diana Renteria, a participant of Mexico Global Teaching Labs. Here is Ari and Kathleen Schwind.
1: Okay, Kathleen Schwind, welcome to the Misty Radio podcast. Thank you for joining us.
0: Thank you so much
2: for
3: having me.
1: Sure. So, uh, Kathleen, you did um, a Misty program in Israel. Um, can you tell us about what you did there and what drew you to the program?
2: Absolutely. So I went to Israel with Misty GTL, Global Teaching Labs, in January of 2019. Over there, I was teaching entrepreneurship and leadership for a couple of schools in the Amal Network. And what really drew me to the region is because, you know, while I was at MIT, by the time I graduated, I spent four years there, got two degrees and went to 22 different countries before I was 22 years old. And I realized that, you know, the Middle East was a region that I was always fascinated by, but I'd never been there before. And I was just starting to work on a thesis on the role of water in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And so I had my eye on the MISI GTL program in Israel for a while and thought this is the perfect time to go there, both because I love teaching, I love entrepreneurship and leadership, and also because I wanted to experience the region for myself, meet the people there, because I felt like I couldn't write a good enough thesis if I hadn't actually been to the region and understood uh, what mattered to the culture, over there, what mattered, what it looked like on the ground, all of that. And mm-hmm. because they wanted to, to experience the culture and teach
1: the so, Israel. Uh, we'll come back to your specific experience that you had while you were in Israel, but I'm curious, you know, what you were studying at MIT at the time, if you can talk a little bit more about that. And, you know, in general, how you felt that um, going international, and your international travel in general was like really informative and in understanding your work and developing your, your research.
2: So I was course 11 at MIT, which is urban studies and planning. There are not many of us, but it's a fantastic program. I did both my bachelor's and my master's in course 11, and I was focusing in environmental policy and planning, mainly surrounding water and the role of water and politics, uh, hydropolitics, people call it uh, the role of freshwater and geopolitics. Really, really fascinated me. I grew up in California where water was a huge issue, always in the minds of Everyone. And I also grew up in a very multicultural household. My mom was Japanese. My dad is a mix of European. My grandparents lived in Brazil, and that's where my mom grew up. So I always grew up with a lot of different cultural influences. And I knew that what I wanted to do in college was actually experience all of that for myself. And that's one of the reasons why traveling and working abroad and doing research abroad, taking classes abroad was so important to me. As someone who had kind of all those different cultural influences at home. I got a small understanding growing up of what that looked like and how important all those viewpoints were. And that's how I became interested in international relations. And from there uh, at MIT, I had the opportunity to do research abroad, work with both informal settlements, work with developed countries, work in places from London to Buenos Aires, Argentina, and just all these different perspectives that I got to see firsthand understand how they all fit together
1: and uh you you had you had developed an interest in how um water plays out in geopolitics um you know and you you apply that uh, lens to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict what about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict uh was interesting to you in terms of water what what drew you towards it
2: Yeah. Great question. So I've always been drawn to the biggest, most intractable
1: problems or conflicts.
2: I love (laughs) problem solving. And that one, when I was, you know, I was thinking, okay, what do I want to focus my thesis on? And growing up again in California with all those water issues, I realized I saw that I was sitting in on the sitting hall meetings when I was, you know, middle school or high school, seeing how (laughs) these water issues were tearing apart the community. I mean, you had the agriculture, you know, the, people who owned the vineyards. You had the residents fighting over water and there were rifts forming in a very small coastal community in California. So when I learned that water was an issue in one of the most intractable conflicts on the planet, I thought, well, is there a solution here? You know, Can water help be part of that solution? And so I think it's just the, the impossible nature of it is what drew me to it. But then realizing that there was so much more and so many other layers than just what you hear about in the news, um, I didn't know that water was a huge part of you know, Israel's national security, a large part of the conflict in itself. And that was something I wasn't aware of but wanted to study more because water was something that was very close to me. And I figured that, you know, it could possibly be a stepping stone towards collaboration because it's something that both Israelis and Palestinians need and are interested in and interested in solving the problem of. And I that would be a, a great place to start.
1: You know, having spent some time in Israel myself, you know, I think this note, you know, the, it's part of the national identity in terms of the way water is used efficiently. Sort of this notion of make the desert bloom, which I'm sure you heard when you were there. Um, so I think it it is really interesting to dive into that so you know I'm sure you thought you know one thing before you went to interact with people on the ground and then you and then you learned a lot more when you were there so you know what what did you gain by being there? how did the uh, your experience of being on the ground and working with people deepen your understanding of the conflict between Israelis and Palestinians, but maybe not just that, but also sort of water, what's hydro, called, called hydropolitics, hydropolitics at large.
2: Yeah. So I obviously, before I went, had done a lot of research on both the region itself. And, you know, mystery G does an awesome job of preparing its students to go abroad and to live in these different cultures and communities. But it also done quite a bit of research on the water and the water conservation over there. And it's one thing to read about the incredible programs that they have and how they start the education around sustainability and the importance of water use at an early age. It's another thing to go over there and actually see them living it. I remember, you know, I talked with students, I was talking with faculty, basically anyone. I mean, the the guys who were running the restaurants that we were going to eat at every day. I was asking them about their relationship with water. What do you think about this? Uh, you know, how does it play a role in your life, et cetera? Because I know in California, it was always something that was the forefront of our minds. And Israel, I think he has less water and it's a, a serious problem there too, yet they've done such an amazing job of taking care of it. So being over there, I really understood, like you said, how water is so important to their everyday lives. I remember talking with my students and they were saying that from as early as they can remember, there were various commercials that were very moving both emotionally and just graphically of you need to conserve water or else this is going to happen and the desert is going to dry up and we're not going to have a place to live. And just hearing them talk about it, it was something that was so baked into them and they completely believed in and it was done effectively and they were very passionate about water. I mean, to the point where we were teaching a class on entrepreneurship and leadership and one of our projects that we had them do was to come up with an idea for a startup. And three of the five projects in one of our classes were formed around water because that was something they saw was incredibly important, but also that it's so much potential around to solve. So definitely being on the ground in Israel gave me an appreciation for it. These things are actually being lived out on a day to day basis. And I also got an understanding of how important water is to their national security as well and how you know water is not a single sum game but it can often look like that especially if you're talking about water going to me or water going to my neighbor, and maybe I'm not, you know, a huge fan of my neighbor. What does that look like? You know, how can we share this? Mm. And, you know, while there's also that aspect, there's also the aspect of willing to learn and willing to listen and willing to say, well, I think there is a solution here. We just have to be able to, to talk it out. And that was something that I, you can't get from literature until you're actually on the ground talking with people and understanding there is an issue, but there's also the willingness to solve it.
1: Yeah, and while you were there, did you have a chance to also interact with the Palestinian side and get any of that perspective around the water challenges that they're facing?
2: I did a little bit, yes. And that was also incredibly illuminating because you understand how serious the problem is in the West Bank. I mainly focus on the West Bank uh, for my research and I Didn't get the chance to talk with anyone from Gaza, but I know this, you know, the situation is obviously very dire there as well. But it's understanding that they have giant black tanks on top of their roofs and they don't know when those are going to be filled up again. They don't know how to measure how much water is in those tanks and understanding that reality of it. And they're trying to to live, they're trying to, you know, run in industries, they're trying to do all these things. That normal people do while also thinking about, you know, how much water is this going to do. Can I go and take a shower today? How many times can I wash my hands? I mean, that's especially something with in today's times. We turn on the tap and we don't think about it in most parts of the U.S. And over there, I started thinking, well, I wonder what it looks like over there. Like, I can only wash my hand a certain amount of times a day. So understanding that Again, it's one thing to look at the numbers and see you know, how much water there is or isn't. And it's another thing to actually talk about what that looks like in reality and how that affects people and how they live. And then you wonder, what would they be doing differently if they did have all the water that they needed?
1: Mm-hmm. I, you know, and that like, raises a good point you know, in some of the literature I was reading to prepare. Um, there was sort of this mention of water being this universally understood necessity right? I mean, in order to have any quality of life, you have to have water, access to a fair amount of water every day, right? And there's sort of a fundamental human understanding around that. And there there seemed to be hope that that fundamental understanding was um, ability to, to cut across, you know, cultures, uh, different groups, even groups that are um, stuck in sort of a conflict dynamic, like Israelis and Palestinians. You know, do you believe that from your experience, the, the issue around water could actually end up being a unifying issue instead of a dividing issue, or is that overly optimistic?
2: So I do think, well, first of all, I think it depends. It depends on the situation. Mm-hmm. But overall, based on what I've seen um, through my research, through my travels, I think that water can definitely be a unifying factor. I think that there's a difference between national security and water security. Uh, National security is we need to keep all the water to ourselves, you know, in terms of water, we need to keep all the water to ourselves so that we're completely secure, but you'll never actually be water secure if you're thinking about water from a national security perspective. Because if you're downstream on a river, you can preserve as much water as you want, but if your upstream neighbor cuts you off, then you don't have the water. So to be water secure, you have to work with your neighbor. You have to make sure your neighbor isn't polluting the water that you're drinking. You have to make sure that your neighbor is adequately sharing the the groundwater supplies. And through that, because water isn't necessarily thought of as the hottest political issue. Like if you say water, Most people aren't going to walk out of the room. They're going to listen and think, well, yes, water is very important. And in that way, you can sort of dialogue and it can be a stepping stone. I don't think that water by itself will solve, for example, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. (laughs) Um, or the Israeli-Arab conflict, but I do believe that it can be a starting point. And it can be a starting point to you know, bring in technologies, bring in different expertise, bring in local communities as well to talk about the problems and talk about the issues, talk about the technologies that one side has and maybe the other side has the missing piece too. I definitely think it can be a conversation starter and something that both sides will be better off if they talk about it together and find mutually beneficial solutions, which won't be easy, but again, it's getting in the room and talking and water is one of those things where, you know, having a discussion will almost always benefit both sides.
1: You had mentioned before about traveling to 22 countries by the age of 22. I mean, that's incredible. And that's something that is like incredibly rare. Um, uh, Speaking of sort of these cultural competencies, you know, what what drew you to that, to that, to having accomplished that, um, you know, how were you able to do it? Um, and uh, you know, what it, what you know, you had mentioned a little bit about your family and your background, coming from a sort of a multicultural, um, uh, multinational sort of background and environment. What, what in your life sort of w- was predictive of you becoming this uh, globe-trotting uh, person that had been to so many countries by the age of twenty-two?
2: I think it really was my upbringing, you know, with my grandparents living in Brazil, they lived, we had a a big property in California and they lived on a granny unit at the bottom of our hill and they would have... Friends over from Brazil, from the other South American countries that they got to know, and just hearing the languages, you know, eating all the foods that the people would come and cook us. I mean, I grew up eating Brazilian food one night, and then eating Japanese food for lunch the next day, and then eating German food for the the dinner after that. And I think that is something that really sparked my culture, realizing that you know, as simple as food, different spices were used, different cultures, different customs were associated with it. You know, hearing the different languages, reading the the book about all the different fruits that grew in the Amazon rainforest and realizing that I've never seen this food before in our supermarkets in the U.S. and understanding that the world is so much bigger and I yearn to see that. Uh, I grew up you know, in a family that encourages to learn, encourages us to be curious and want to problem solve and want to learn new things. And I think naturally that was just kind of the thing that I wanted to learn more about because I saw a small view of it from my own family. And so when I went to university, that was the biggest thing that I was looking for. I wanted a chance to do research abroad and to travel abroad. And more so than just be a tourist, but to actually be a traveler and get to work with communities, understand what it looked like. Because the one thing to go and enjoy the food and see the sights, but it's another thing to realize that, you know, how do these communities form? How are they, you know, how are the, the, the formal settlements integrated with the slums and the informal settlements? What does the electricity generation look like? What does the education systems look like? And that's really what I wanted to learn. And MIT had the most incredible international opportunities, especially MISTI. And so from the get-go, that's what I wanted to do. And from there, I when I got in and I got here, I just thought, okay, let's do it. Let's start traveling the world. Let's see how many different experiences I can get. You know, I went to, to Singapore through Misty the, the summer after my freshman year, traveled all over Southeast Asia, you know, presented some UN conferences, one in Ecuador and one in Malaysia, did research in various places, you know, took class trips and did practicums in South America and all, you know, MISTI in Israel, and all of that just confirmed my belief and my interest in learning about the world, learning about different cultures and perspectives. And mm-hmm. there's also the, the financial angle. Obviously, MISTI is incredible in that you know, they have a lot of financial resources for that. I mean, I never had the financial resources to go <laughs> and globe trot before I got to MIT. And so this <laughs> just like the world opened up and suddenly I had the resources and the understanding and the, you know, the opportunity to go.
1: All right. I think that's a good place to end. I guess I just I had one more question. I mean, so there was, you're, a few, you're not 22 anymore now. You're a few years older than that. So what's your number at now? you were at 22 at 22. How many more have you tacked on?
2: So I'm 23 years old. Uh, okay. and I've been to, Depending on how you count them, um, I've been to 27.
1: Okay. that's great. And it's great. You've been, you know, in the last year, like, you know, I've barely left the state of Massachusetts in the last year. So it's amazing that you've been able to get a few more in. Um,
2: exactly, there would have been more. I was. I lived in England for a year doing my master's at Cambridge. I was planning on visiting friends that I'd met throughout my travels and they're scattered all over Europe. So I was planning on tacking on a few more, but hopefully in the
1: future. Yeah, that's what we're all hoping, go back to normal very soon. I'm sure the students, uh, I'm sure the, the MISTI students are waiting for or the MIT students are waiting for So anyway, thank you so much, Kathleen. It was great chatting with you. And I appreciate your time.
0: Thank you
2: so much. This is such a pleasure.
0: You just heard Ari interview MIT alum Kathleen Schwind about her travels with Misty. Now, I want to get into Griselda's interview with Diana about teaching in Mexico in person and remotely.
3: I am currently a junior in course 20, but I participated in uh, Misty Mexico during IAP for my sophomore and my junior years. Uh, Misty Mexico is actually um, kind of personal to me because my dad is from Mexico and I have a lot of family there. So I've actually been going to Mexico almost every year for my entire life. But I just, I really love um, the culture there. I really love going there. And I thought it would be really cool to see Mexico from a different point of view, not from, you know, just the way that my family sees it, but to really see it in, um, I guess, an academic way. And also to kind of give back to that community because it has played such a big part in my life so i thought it would be really cool to participate in misty to be able to meet people outside of my family maybe go to parts of mexico that i haven't been to before and also um yeah just see what the culture in academia and more industry side is like
4: that's great how would you compare your two experiences so in January of 2020, you got the opportunity to go to Mexico in person. And then January 2021, you had to do it remotely. How would you compare these two experiences?
3: I feel like it's definitely not fair to compare in person with remote because in person is just, I mean, you're actually in the country. You can go get tacos at midnight and you can go climb on top of the pyramid of the sun. Those are just experiences that are hard to replicate. But um, I think that the biggest part, uh, what was most rewarding in both experiences was the relationships that you got to build. And we all know that it's harder to build relationships on Zoom, but I feel like in both of those experiences, I was able to work with students from other universities in Mexico and the relationships I got to build with them was really special. And in person, the work that I was doing was actually with uh, local community centers in Mexico City. And so we partnered up with uh, La Universidad Iberoamericana, the university in Mexico, and also the um, the, the UNAM. Uh, so we, had, we worked with students from both of those universities, and we also worked with high school students on projects to help community centers. And we went to different community centers throughout the city. And so that was a really unique experience because we got to see both the more, I suppose, affluent parts of Mexico City, which is where we were staying, um, and then also the more rural and low income parts of the city. And it was just really an awesome opportunity to see how the members of the communities that we visited were able to pull together. And they were really working to address issues that affected them like food insecurity and the lack of green spaces and providing educational enrichment opportunities to um, their children. So it was really it was just a really unique experience to be able to go to those community centers, see how they were helping their communities, um, see people organizing themselves, and then also
4: to contribute to that through the projects that we did. So can you tell us a little bit more about the projects that you did? What were you teaching? Yeah, so the I
3: guess this is January 2020 when we went in person. We did sort of three main projects. So one was building an automated vertical garden um, And that was to sort of address those issues of food insecurity and the lack of green spaces that I mentioned before. Uh, And so we built it with an automated pump. And the idea was so that people could try to replicate that design um, in their own homes and um, be able to get free fresh produce. Um, Additionally, we worked on a electronic chess game simulation, where one of the professors or instructors at the community centers taught chess, and he wanted a way for his students to be able to go through different chess exercises. Um, and he didn't have necessarily have the capacity to be able to sit down with each one of them and show them each of the exercises. So uh, one of our projects was to try to program a chess board to help students go through those exercises. And then the third was working on building a, an automated vehicle. That one we made a CAD design of ways that we would put together the parts so that the members of the community center who a lot of them were uh, mechanics or worked in some type of um, auto shop type of industry, uh, so they could go on and um, build one of those vehicles. So did your Spanish improve? My Spanish definitely improved, um, especially because I went a couple weeks early to stay with family. So I was in Mexico for more than a month And my projects were all, we spoke only in Spanish with um, the students that we worked with and the communities that we were working with. So my Spanish improved a lot. My parents noticed it when I came back home. They're like, wow, all of a sudden I spoke better Spanish than my brother, which was not the case before. So um, it was a really great opportunity to work on my Spanish
4: skills. That's great. And did you learn anything different about Mexican culture that you didn't know? I, I guess I learned sort of what Mexican culture is like outside of my family.
3: Um, I guess I had before only, you know, really hung out with the same people every year. And so it was interesting to see things that were the same, like sort of that laid back attitude that, sure, it's 11 o'clock and you wanna go get tacos, like, let's do it. We, we did do random outings with some
4: of the students from. So you can tell us a little bit about your experience teaching remotely, what what did you teach? Yeah, so I think that uh, it was
3: actually almost, um, I don't know if I want to call it a blessing, but a, like a hidden benefit to teaching remotely was that we were able to get students from all across Mexico. We worked at a high school that has several locations in different states even. So I taught a very niche topic about COVID-19 and biotechnology. And I was able to get a class of about 30 students that were all really passionate about biotech, which I feel if you had gone to a single high school, it's harder to find so many students that are committed to going to this enrichment class for an hour and a half every day for two weeks um, on just one topic. And so um, I really had a lot of fun because my students were super engaged, super interested, uh, which was way more than I had expected at first and they would ask questions in class. Um, I would pop into breakout rooms when I had them do activities and we would talk through the different concepts. And it was just so, so cool to be able to see a student who's maybe initially struggling with the concept and you just talk it out with them and all of a sudden that light goes off in their head um, when they get it. And so I think that was um, something that I was afraid might be lacking in a virtual classroom Mm -hmm. Uh, because it's just more awkward but I found that the students still were engaged were asking questions and again because we were able to get students from all over the country we were able to find the ones that were just really passionate about this topic um, and so I think that we we both had that energy and it was just a really great experience that maybe would have been even harder to do
4: in person. Right yes no when it was perfect timing the perfect topic for the perfect timing right so, <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's great that was a lot of interest so um are there any long-term impact in your personal and professional experience after these you know your participation
3: yeah so I guess a tangible impact is um I guess it confirmed for me how much I enjoy teaching I had done you know tutoring or maybe one-on-one mentoring before but I never had to put together, you know, two weeks of coursework, which actually proved to be a lot more difficult than I had anticipated. But it was really fun um, and really cool to see how the students reacted to the material. And at the end, we had them do final projects and they were just really awesome. So, um, yeah, just being able to have that experience confirmed for me how much I enjoy teaching and. Uh, confirmed to me, I guess, in my career route that I do want to go sort of the academia way instead of um, exploring industry. So that's sort of a tangible um, goal. And then another thing is uh, what I loved about Misty was that international collaboration. And that's something that I feel like I want to be able to include somehow in the work that I do in the future. I'm not really sure about exactly what that would look like. But yeah, just being able to communicate with people who come from different backgrounds from you, have different life experiences, but you're working together towards something that you're all really passionate about, that was a really unique experience and something that I want to try to include in my
4: future career. That's great. So what advice would you give other MIT students about, you know, participating in MISTI or having international experiences?
3: Yeah, um, I would say you definitely cannot leave MIT without doing MISTI at least once or twice or maybe three times. (laughs) Um, I would definitely love to go um, again to MISTI, maybe to exploring another country or something. Um, But yes, it was a very rewarding experience. And I think, like I said, um, it's not every day that you get to collaborate with people from not just like a different background, but a different country. Um, And I think that's something, even if you went to that country, you know, as a tourist, it's not the same as actually getting to know the people there and getting to work with them and realizing how, I guess, connected people are when we share the same passions, um, regardless of where we come from. So I think that being able to participate in MISTI was just, yeah, just a really great experience, a really cool way to meet other people and collaborate other people and it was just yeah you can't you can't leave MIT without without doing
0: Misty Misty Radio is a production of MIT International Science and Technology Initiatives you can listen to us on WMUR Cambridge 88.1 FM or wherever you get your podcasts thanks for listening see you next time